morning's reading is from the book of Daniel, chapter 1. Uh, I hope you've been able to find it. If you've been looking on your uh, screen, uh, it's in the Old Testament, uh, just before, before Hosea and after, I think, Ezekiel. So uh, hopefully that's been okay. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord delivered Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand, along with some of the articles from the temple of God. These he carried off to the temple of his God in Babylonia and put in the treasure house of his God. Then the king ordered Ashpenaz, king chief of his court, officials to bring into the king's service some of the Israelites from the royal family and the nobility, young men without any physical defect, handsome, showing aptitude for every kind of learning, well-informed, quick to understand, and qualified to serve in the king's palace. He was to teach them the language and literature of the Babylonians. The king assigned them a daily amount of food and wine from the king's table. They were to be trained for three years, and after that, they were to enter the king's service. Among those who were chosen were some from Judah, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. The chief official gave them new names. To Daniel, the name Belteshazzar, to Hananiah, Shadrach, to Mishael, Meshach, and to Azariah, Abednego. But Daniel resolved not to defile himself with the royal food and wine, and he asked the chief official for permission not to defile himself in this way. Now, God had caused the official to show favor and compassion to Daniel. But the official told Daniel, I'm afraid of my lord the king, who has assigned your food and drink. Why should he see you looking worse than the other young men of your age? The king would then have my head because of you. Daniel then said to the guard whom the chief official had appointed over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, please test your servants for 10 days. Give us nothing but vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then compare our appearance with that of the young men who eat the royal food and treat your servants in accordance with what you see. So he agreed to this and treated them for two 10 days. At the end of the 10 days, they looked healthier and better nourished than any of the young men who ate the royal food. So the guard took away their choice food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables instead. To these four young men, God gave knowledge and understanding of all kinds of literature and learning. And Daniel could understand visions and the dreams of all kinds. At the end of the time set by the king to bring them into his service, the chief official presented them to Nebuchadnezzar. The king talked with them, and he found none equal to Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. So they entered the king's service. In every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king questioned them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters in his whole kingdom. And Daniel remained there until the first year of King Cyrus.
for, for those prayers. Uh, there's a lot of colds around at the minute, and there's lots of sniffles. And if you need to have a cough, should we just have a quick cough break? We all just let out one big cough. Pathetic. I thought it was going to be better than that, but that was pathetic. That's better. Thank you. Thank you. So we're going to be beginning together a series of talks, a series of studies on the story, the life, the book of Daniel. I'm really excited uh, about this, this journey that we're about to begin together. A remarkable man of courage, of gifting, of prayer, uh, of faithfulness. And there's so much there that we're, we're going to learn from that. Uh, but I want to just take a moment to set the book in its context to work out where we are when we read the, the book of Daniel. So I'll take a little bit of time uh, to do that, and it'll set up uh, hopefully the rest of the series. Richard's preaching for me uh, next Sunday because I'm off on reading week. So I'll do all this historical stuff for you, Richard. You can just piggyback right off the, uh, the back of that. Uh, so just bear with me for a while. I'll take a little bit of time to go through through and then it'll, it'll benefit us as we launch into the chapter. Is that okay? That's okay with Mike. I've got one person that says okay. Have you ever been through something unthinkable? Like what happened was awful, but what was added to the pain of it was you never imagined that would happen to you. You never imagined they would behave like that to you. And added to the struggle that you're going through is the psychological, the emotional weight of, I never thought I was not prepared for this. At the heart, if you know the Bible story well, the heart of the Old Testament story is the experience of exile. See, one thing starts to happen as the people of Israel grow in their relationship with God. They enter into this covenant agreement. It's a relationship. And God makes certain promises. He says that you're going to have a land of your own, a king to rule over you. My presence will be among you. You're going to know me in a, a special way. It's going to be a place of protection and, uh, and blessing. But, but around that are these lifestyle choices I'm asking you to make. I want you to be my people. I want you to be distinct. Uh, I don't want you just to receive from me. I want us to be in, in relationship together. So the land is promised them. This uh, land of their own, this identity that they have, is theirs by relationship with God. And so as they begin to fall away from that, as generation after generation worships other gods and pays no attention to God's ways and, and laws, the covenant lies in tatters. And God's first instance is to send people into the nation to try and remind them of who they are, remind them of their identity. Especially important for, for this book, as we'll see later on, is the prophet Jeremiah. And through Jeremiah, God says time and time again, your place in God, your place in this world is not a given. It's a gift. You have to have it hold in, in relationship. God does not just want to keep giving you handouts. He wants you to know with him, uh, know him, to, to live with him and not without him. And as, as, as prophet and prophet gets ignored, some of them are stoned, exiled, killed. Uh, the people of Israel fall further and further away from God. And eventually the covenant, which has lied in tatters for so many years, is forgotten and swept aside. At the same time in world history, there's another superpower on the stage, uh, Babylon. 
Babylon is huge in its military might, in its strategy, uh, in its power. And it is literally sweeping across the known world like a wildfire. Other huge empires uh, just kind of bow to it. Even Egypt bows to the power of Babylon. And then eventually those soldiers reach Israel, this tiny little nation comparatively, uh, on the world stage, this tiny little group of people. If you know the story well, there are 12 tribes of Israel. Uh, they're a divided nation, so there's 10 tribes that make up the northern kingdom called Israel, just two little ones down the south, which are called Judah. Judah fares a lot better in terms of staying close with God, but they eventually, too, uh, lose that passion, lose that faith. And so eventually, in 722 BC, King Nebuchadnezzar reaches Israel and reaches Jerusalem. This is unthinkable. This is unimaginable for the Jewish people. And they're soldiers wearing the emblem of the lion, the lion of, uh, of Babylon, and their helmets wore the same um, signia, march up to Jerusalem. Surely Jerusalem, the city of David, the promise of God, is, is not going to fall to some foreign army. But they've forgotten it's not a given, it's a gift. The soldiers besieged the city for something like two years. Now, the city's been well built. It's got these huge, thick walls. It's got a, its own water supply. It's, uh, it, it can last a long time with the food supplies that it has uh, on its own, but it can't last longer than two years. And Babylon, which has cut through the ancient world like a knife through water, just waits for Jerusalem to fall. Eventually, they, they burst into the city, literally destroying the walls. Uh, these walls, which, of course, were, were God's promise of, of protection for the people, they knock those down, they sweep in, they bring out the king, and they put him on public trial. Uh, he's found to be guilty in this mock trial, and his sons are killed in front of him. Then his eyes are removed, and he's shackled in bronze chains. And him and all of the officials. So if you're living in Israel now, the people who were there to protect you and guard you and guide you, they're all being led away. You're completely powerless at this point. It's not just the walls that have fallen. It's all the power structures, all the safety of the city is fallen. And the king himself uh, then goes and joins this long line of people who are being led out of Israel. The people are utterly humiliated. They are stripped naked as they walk together in chains. Along the way, the elderly and the young can't make the journey. And so some of them begin to die of exhaustion and hunger and thirst and are just left on the side of the desert and on the side of the wilderness roads. They're just left there. This is a broken people. A broken nation being led off into exile to be scattered uh, throughout the Babylonian Empire. Eventually to Judah uh, is going to fall. It lasts a little bit longer, but, but not that much longer really. And, and they're led away into exile. There are some things that happen during this time in order to mock the people. They're old stories. They're old stories of faith. They're old songs. Uh, people gather around them and say, sing to us the songs of Zion. Some of you will recognize these as, as lyrics to a pop song. It's not a pop song. It's a psalm. 
It's a prayer of lament. It's people agonizing over how this has happened and why this has happened and what's going to happen. By the rivers of Babylon, we sat and wept when we remembered Zion. When we looked back to where we were, to what we had and the tragedy that we did not know what we had, we wept. When we remembered the people who were with us who are no longer with us, we wept. When we remembered the God who promised so much to us, who we'd abandoned, we wept. Psalm goes on to say, so we hung up our harps on the trees. Couldn't sing anymore. The psalm asks this question, how can we sing the songs of the Lord while in a foreign land? Have you ever been through something in your face which is so painful you don't know if you can worship? You come to church and you hear people singing and you just think, I wish that was my song. How can I sing? How can I celebrate? How can I pray? How can I trust? How can I believe again? When everything I held secure, everything that felt like it was permanent and and, and, going to be there forever, when all of that is shaken, when the music fades and all is stripped away, how can I sing the songs of the Lord here? And now, how can I carry on? Maybe some of you have been there in your faith. Maybe for some of us here today, maybe we wouldn't know it from your appearance and the fact that you stand and sing and the fact that you're here, but deep in your heart, there is a question. I don't know how long I can hold on. I don't know if I can sing this song. I don't know if I'm part of this. I I don't know if I can be again. How can I sing the songs of the Lord? Well, in this place, a place I never thought I would be. Well, in many ways, the life of Daniel, the story of this man of faith, is an answer to this question. How can we sing the songs of the Lord in this foreign land? Well, we're going to look at Daniel because Daniel somehow manages to do it. I wanted to start there today because for many of us, the stories about Daniel, uh, we first learned kind of early on, I guess, in in life or in our faith. Uh, How many of us read the story of Daniel and the lion's den in a a children's book? Or how many people remember these things? The flannel graph. Do you remember the flannel graphs? I love flannel graphs. They don't don't use them anymore. one of those things that, as a kid, I was fascinated by it, and sometimes people would come and put people on the board, and they hadn't found the right kind of picture, so they were huge compared to everyone else, but it didn't sort of matter, and it was great, and sometimes we think of some of these stories through that lens, the flannel graphs and children's stories. No, this is Holocaust. This is the people of Ukraine wondering when Russia will stop. And how many will die, and whether they'll survive. This is the world of Daniel. This is his story. So, Daniel, we're introduced to, and three friends. How many people here could name Daniel's three friends? Let's have a quick Bible pop quiz. Kathy just read them uh, for us, but we'll try it anyway. How many people can name them, do we think? Yeah, go on, Mary. 
Not quite. No. You've given us their Babylonian names, which is quite interesting. Uh, but if we, if we read the passage, they have Hebrew names. One of the things that Babylon used to do when they conquered a nation was to try and crush that connection, that culture, uh, that story. And so they would give people new names. Uh, so we think of them as Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Abednego, or however you want to pronounce it. I don't know. None of us here really know. But their original names were Hananiah, Mishael, and, and Azariah. Now, if you look at the meaning uh, of these words, really interestingly, I think, Daniel, it was last Sunday. We found out that Daniel means God is my judge. Uh, anytime you see the word El in a name in the Bible, it's short for Elohim, which is one of the uh, original names for God in Hebrew. Uh, and so Daniel is God is my judge, just as Bethel is house of God, Beth's house uh, in Hebrew. Uh, these other names, Hananiah, God is gracious. Michel is literally a question. It means, who is like our God? And Azariah means, God is my helper. But almost immediately, as these four friends who had been part of the group, first group of people to leave uh, Israel, now we've got no idea what age they were when they left. We've got no idea really what age they were, except that they're called young men uh, and that they were handsome, they were quick to understand, they were you know, easily to, easy to educate. They were people that Babylon wanted in their future. Uh, and so there was something about them, but we don't really know what age they were, but they're given new names. So Daniel's name is changed to Belteshazzar. Sounds like one of the three wise men, doesn't it? But it's not. Uh, um, let me go back. Hananiah's name uh, is changed to Shadrach, Mishael, to Meshach, uh, and Az- Azariah to Abednego. So Daniel's name, which had once meant God is my judge, he's offered a new name, Baal's Prince. Or you could translate it as Baal's Favorite. Now, Baal was a false god in the ancient world, a a foreign god, a particularly popular god in Babylon. Babylon worshipped many different false gods, and this was a particularly popular one there. And so almost immediately, they're trying, on one hand, to crush uh, Daniel's connection to his past, to erase his culture, but there's a sense in which, there's a slight mockery to it, but there's a a little bit of flattery going on here. We're going to call you... Baal's favorite, the favorite of our favorite God. Shadrach's name is changed, uh, and Shadrach means command of the moon god. Uh, Meshach, uh, who is what Aku is. Aku was another Babylonian god, so they've kind of tweaked his name slightly. It was another question. Uh, and Abednego means a servant of, uh, of Nebu. Now, Nebu actually is one of Nebuchadnezzar's favorite gods. So again, there's a, there's a tinge of, uh, of flattery here. So they're offered this opportunity to go to the University of Babylon, to be trained in its ways, to learn its language, to learn its culture, and potentially uh, to be trained for for leadership, for position in the future of of Babylon. Now, one of the things that's quite interesting about the book of Daniel is, as we've already seen this morning, the names Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego seem to stick. I mean, even today, that's how we refer to them rather than their original Hebrew names. But nobody refers to Daniel as, as Belteshazzar, uh, Belteshazzar, sorry. We still call him Daniel. And that's kind of consistent with the book of Daniel. If you read on the next few chapters, it's Daniel does this and Daniel said that. 
Now, there's a number of reasons that that could be the case. It's kind of a question, really, but one of the, the, the reasons could be, well, Daniel wrote this book. And so if he writes this book, of course he's going to put his own name in. Of course he wants to keep that identity there. But we see a few times in the book, later in, in chapter 5, when he's serving, not Nebuchadnezzar, no, but Nebuchadnezzar's son, the queen refers to him as Daniel, whom the king called Belteshazzar. So there's something about Daniel that, who will not let go of his name. I've got this terrible habit when it comes to names of shortening them. Uh, I, don't, I think it's because I grew up in, in the valleys and I've got a terrible memory, especially for names. And so I, I tend to shorten people's names. Now, sometimes there are people who correct me. I say, well, actually, no, that's, that's not my name. And they tell me their whole name. And they, they keep doing that. And eventually, I, I think, oh, yes, they want to be known as that, not my, my shortened version. Maybe that's what Daniel did. Maybe every time they referred to him, he, he corrected them and said his name. But for whatever reason, Daniel will not let go of this name. Names are important, aren't they? Who, who we are is important. In our kind of culture today, names are, are kind of random. They're kind of randomly assigned, not like the, the ancient world. But then the name that you become known by is really important. When you get to know someone really well, you might say to them, well, call me this. Don't, don't use my full name or my title. Call, Call me this. Names, names become important to us. The other way in which names are important in, in our world, maybe perhaps not in a literal sense, but can be in the sense of a label. Somebody notices one thing about you, and then you're always the person who? The color of your skin in our world the place that you grew up, the kind of job that you've got, the kind of car that you drive, the kind of clothes that you wear, the kind of shows that you watch, the kind of social media you're involved in, all these kind of things, the mistakes that you've made, the pain that you've caused, they become a label, don't they? Somehow these things stick to us. And eventually they can stick not just to us on the outside and what other people see, but stick to us on the inside. I think one of the things that we see so clearly in Daniel was he was a man of strong identity. Yes, his nation was stripped away. The temple where he'd been to pray and to worship had been burned to the ground. And worse than that, some of the holy objects that they used for worship, the things that had been set aside for God's use, had been consecrated, had been carried off and put in Nebuchadnezzar's private collection, uh, in a box in the corner of his uh, temple to, to his God. Uh, everything that he'd known had been shaken and, and robbed of him, and yet underneath all of that, he knew who he was. I'm Daniel. And I don't understand all of what's going on to me, but God is my judge. And that's the thing that grounds him and, and secures him. We're going to see in, in just a moment there's a test uh, that the, uh, they face almost initially, a test that he suggests, because he knows who he is. Uh, I don't want to be thrown about by this. Do me a favor, just for a second, could you turn to the people around you and ask them a question? Could you turn to them and could you say, who on earth do you think you are? Go on, just, just do that for a second. <clears throat> 
<laughs> all right, all right, good grief. Wow, that was... So, some people enjoyed that a little bit more than I was uh, expecting. Some people put a little bit more volume and uh, energy into that than perhaps was, was strictly required. But it's a really good question to ask. Who on earth do you think you are? There's a you, isn't there, that you think you are. There's a you that, that you know. A real um, incredible writer, a guy called Michael Novak, a guy who's done lots of research into faith and how it works in our age, it tells us that there are three kind of different convictions. There are what we might call political convictions. These are things that I say because it kind of enhances my my reputation, it boosts, boosts my CV. It sounds good if I say I agree with or I consent to that kind of stuff. They're sort of public or, or, or political convictions. So a classic example of this would be King Herod in the Christmas story when the Magi come to him. He says, let me know when you find him so that I too can go and worship him. And of course he had no intention of doing that, but it's a public conviction. And then he talks about personal convictions. There's things, not that I just say I believe, there's things I think I believe. There's a person I want to be. There's a way I think the world should work. There's a person I think I should become. And then he talks about private convictions, core convictions. And he says those are the things that you believe without trying. So, For example, if you're in the middle of a road a lorry comes towards you at hurtling speed, you know you've got to get out of the way. You don't, you don't need to turn and say that to anybody for any political or public reasons. You know. Part of your internal map of how the world works is if, I, if I'm hit by a lorry, I'm, that's not going to go good for me. It'll go much better for the lorry. And I wonder where our faith lands in terms of our identity. Is it something that we say we believe? Something that we think we believe? something we actually believe. Believe it like we believe we need oxygen. Believe it like we believe the way gravity works. Do we know who we are? Sometimes the only way you can work out, sometimes the only way that public and, and political convictions can become private and core convictions is through testing. We won't know until all else is stripped away who we really are, where our loyalty really lies. It's easy, isn't it, to have a sense of identity in, in what we do. It's so common these days, if you meet somebody for the first time, to ask them, what do you do? And they'll tell you their job, very often. The answer to what do you do is, I'm a, uh, I'm a builder, I'm a teacher, I'm a doctor. It's, it's something that we do. That's so, a, a deep part of, of who we are. And that's not necessarily a bad thing. God created work. God wants us to work. God himself works. Uh, so that's not necessarily a bad thing. But if we only find our identity in what we do, well, what we do might have to change. This body that I walk around with and, and do what I do in might, might break down. The conditions that I have to, to, to work in might change. The job I have might suddenly disappear. So who am I? when I can't do what I do. Sometimes we define our identity by what we don't do. 
the old joke, isn't it, about the Baptist who was discovered on a desert island who built two churches, and the recovery crew said to him, why have you built two churches? He said, well, this is the one I go to, and that's the one I don't go to. Sometimes we understand ourselves in that way, don't we? I'm not one of them. I might not be perfect, I might not be great, but at least I'm not. You're all filling in your own blanks at this point. Sometimes we define it by what we do, sometimes by what we don't do. Sometimes we can come to be defined, not by what we do, but by what's been done to us. Almost nervous to step onto this, because this is, is holy ground for some of us here. But what happened to us was so defining that now I can't think of myself without thinking of that moment, of those words, of that person. Maybe for some of us here right now, you think of yourself as what was done to you. That's why we have to stop and be healed. Because whatever has happened to us, whatever our identity in Jesus is so much deeper. Who God says we are is so much more important. Jesus once told a story about the end of time where people will be divided into two camps. He talks about people who've tried to pour out their lives into others and serve other people's needs and have done that in, in his name, in Jesus' name. And he says that those people will receive these words from his lips, well done, good and faithful servant. Come and enter into your master's happiness. Isn't it great today to know Bill has heard those words? Well done, Bill. Good and faithful servant. Come on in. Come and enjoy. Come and rest. Come home. Well done. And those words, if you're following Jesus today, await each and every one of us. And that will be the only opinion of us that will matter for all of eternity. Is his well done. We need to stop and be healed because that is so much more important, so much more vital than what has been done to us. Sometimes that sense of, of, of hurt and pain is not what's been done to us, but what's been done for others. They always seem to love them more than me. They fitted in, and I didn't. When I went through life or went through that situation, whether it's family or friends or colleagues or the neighborhood that you grew up in, I always felt like I was outside the tent looking in, thinking that would be nice. To be part of that. So who are you? What is your identity? Who on earth do you think you are? And I know there's an answer that we know is the right answer. And on a Sunday morning when a minister asks you that question in a talk like this, there's an answer we're going to give. But what about tomorrow? What about this week? What about the places where we are, where there are tests and challenges and, and stresses and strains, and there will be pressure to become part of something else, to do something else, 
maybe pressure to be part of a group that looks down on another group. Who, who on earth do we think we are? Because if we don't know, that will be given to us. It was interesting, Tim, uh, sorry, um, Daniel earlier, I, ch- I said I changed people's names. Uh, Daniel earlier quoted from, from Tim Keller, great author, great thinker. He once put it this way, that if our identity is in our work, success will go to our heads and failure will, will go to our hearts. And that is no way to live. It's constantly thrown about by how's life going, how am I doing? Another interesting challenge, I think, for a lot of us today, especially young people, and guys, I hope we're praying for our young people. They need our prayers. They face challenges and stresses and strains that we never faced. The idea that words that we said or something that we did could be captured and shared on the world wide web forever is a pressure that I did not know growing up. But it's created a culture where who I am is what other people think of me. How I'm doing in life is how many friends I have online or how many likes I get or what groups I'm, I'm invited to be part of or what events I hear about through, through those things. We need to pray for our young people. We really, really do. So who on earth do we think that we are? From the rivers of Babylon, I want to take you to a different river, a river that, th- that flowed through the nation of Israel and eventually led up to what they thought of as a sea. They called it the Sea of Galilee because it was so big, it was actually a lake. And there were some people there who thought of themselves as fishermen. Uh, they were two brothers who worked with another set of brothers. Uh, and day in, day out, this was their life. Rode out onto the same lake, fished the same waters, tried to catch fish, and that was their life. They'd inherited it from their parents, and some of them had been through rabbi school and, and flunked it, and so they were back on the boat, and that was their life. And then one day, Jesus walks along, this different rabbi, and he, he sees them there. It's the morning, so they're, they're washing their nets, and he says to them, have you got any fish? And they said, no, we've been out all night. Haven't caught a thing. That was the morning they did not want to be asked. Have you got anything to sell? Been out all night, caught nothing. And Jesus says to them, well, why don't we have a go? Let's let's just, let's go for a fish. And they're furious with him. Simon called Simon, who's later going to change his name, interestingly, to to Peter. He says, we've been at this all night. We haven't caught a thing, and... If you're going to catch fish, it's at night because in the daylight they hide from the surface of it. They're down in the depths. But if you say so, he says, well, I've got no idea if you're just humoring Jesus or not at this point. So they row out into the lake, cast their nets over the side and, and wait. And then there is such a large hold of fish that these nets threaten to tear apart. They've got to call the other boat over to help them get it to shore and Peter realizes, I'm in the presence of a prophet, a a holy man. He says, go away from me. I I can't be in the presence of this goodness, of this glory. And Jesus says to him, do not be afraid, Peter. From now on, you will catch people. You'll fish for people. See, life is different with Jesus in the boat. 
if you say so. I wonder if we take Jesus to work. I wonder if we take Jesus to school. I wonder if we take Jesus home. What would it be like to face those kind of mornings, those kind of challenges, with him whispering in our ear, let's try that again. Let's do that again, but I'll be in the boat this time. But I'll help you, I'll, I'll be with you. Don't be afraid, from now on, you will be fishers of men. You're not going to do more activity, it's not more stuff to do, but it's a person that you will become. And then very briefly, because we're running quickly out of time, one of the things that Daniel and his friends were given the opportunity to do at the um, University of Babylon was to go and eat at the king's table. Wow. Anybody hungry this morning? That picture's probably not helping uh, if you are, but you can imagine what a king's table was like. One of the things we know about Nebuchadnezzar was he was not a man marked by restraint uh, and humility. So it was every kind of food uh, imaginable, wine was available. They're trying to get these boys in. They're trying to butter them up to be part of the new world, the new uh, Babylonian empire. And Daniel looks at it all and he knows there are laws in the Old Testament that prohibit me from eating this. And so he's got a choice now. Can I sing the songs of the Lord in a foreign land? If it means eat that or don't eat, what will I do? I think it's really interesting what he decides to do. He just helps himself to some vegetables and to some water. And one of the guys that's been put in charge of them, a guy called Ashpenaz, comes over and opens his heart to Daniel. So obviously there's a bit of a, 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 a relationship here. He says, I'm, I'm afraid of my lord the king. And if he sees that you're not getting well fed and, and, and watered, my life is on the line. He'll, he'll have my head for it. And so Daniel says, well, tough luck, mate, turn or burn. That's the only choice I, I've got. Now, actually, Daniel finds this other way. Daniel says... Try this. Just give us water and veg for 10 days. And Daniel creates an opportunity for God to work in that situation. I wonder how many times we've seen a shut door, or we've seen things as this or that, or black or white, and God is wanting an opportunity to be seen. God is wanting an opportunity to work. If Daniel had just refused to engage with this guy at all, who knows what would have happened to him, but I tell you what wouldn't have happened. So this guy, Ash Penaz, and then others in the royal court wouldn't have come to understand there is a God who is higher, there is a way that is better. And Daniel's simple faithfulness in this situation opens a door, starts a conversation, starts a story. And for all of us today, I, I guess that's the opportunity that you and I face. Can you create space for God to work? I was thinking about this this morning, and I'll just share this, and then we'll come to, to pray together. It's a, remarkable that Daniel was so confident that God could work in this situation. I mean, when they heard that Babylon was on the rise, they must have prayed that empire would never reach their nation. They must have. I mean, what we know of Daniel is he's a man of prayer. 
When they heard that the army was close, they must have prayed that Jerusalem would never fall. When Jerusalem fell, they must have prayed that they wouldn't be carried off into captivity. And time and time again, these things that they're hoping for and praying for are being knocked down like a domino rally. And yet Daniel can hold on to God's faithfulness, God's character. I might not understand what he is up to, but I can trust his heart. I can prove his faithfulness. And even when my own faith gets battered and bruised and lies in tatters on the floor, faithfulness is still an option. So can we create space in the challenges that we face for God to work? Would you pray with me for just a moment?